you would, and let's turn to the book of James. And we're going to start a new series on the book of James. We're just going to go through uh, this book verse by verse, line for line. And um, if the book of James has any theme at all, it is simply practical Christian living, how to live day by day, serving the Lord, and uh, we just want to start right in the beginning, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, we read these first few verses here, and uh, we are introduced to the writer uh, in, in America. When, when we write a letter, traditionally, you write your entire letter, you go, dear so-and-so, and at the very end of the letter, you can put sincerely or not so sincerely yours, and uh, as the case may be, and sign your name. And, uh, but here, in, in, in all of our letters that are in the uh, New Testament, the signer signs first, and his name is James. And and uh, I was reading one, and they said there's no less than six Jameses in our New Testament. And uh, we're not going to take time to investigate all the different Jameses. It, it could not be James, the brother of John. He was killed in uh, Acts chapter 12. Uh, it would seem the simplest, and, and most people believe that it was James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem who happened to be the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there have been many uh, interesting scenarios that have been uh, put forth that James was actually an older brother of Jesus from a previous marriage and, and uh, all of this. But the simplest way to understand it, look at uh, Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Mark chapter 6. Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, and many people were astonished at his teaching, and here was part of their reason. It says, well, let's just start in verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and of Judah, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. They said, Listen. Where did Jesus get all of these things? Are not, is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, 
And then it goes on to list the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and there are sisters in the family. Uh, this was a traditional family. If Mary was not their mother, then why would she be listed first as the mother of Jesus? I mean, you, you just have to go places to try to make uh, your tradition fit into the Bible. Uh, I would much rather make my tradition from the Bible. Amen? That Mary was the natural mother of Jesus of James, of Joseph, of Judah, Simon. So he had four brothers, and we don't know how many sisters. And James, this eldest of the brothers of Jesus, was uh, became the pastor of the Baptist church at Jerusalem. And the reason I use the term Baptist is not because it was called First Baptist Church, I mean, today, if you go into a town and see First Baptist Church, you can almost guarantee it's not a good church. Uh, very rarely uh, is that the case anymore. Now, if you go back in time 150 years, that would have been a good church. But things change over time. But it, we use the term Baptist referring to the doctrinal position of the church. And so we have James here. And he is writing, and uh, people make much ado to his uh, salutation to whom he was writing. It says, well, let's get first who he claimed to be. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that the first thing that he identifies himself is not as the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, Though that would be his, what we might say, claim to fame. That would be how most people would know him and identify him. Uh, as far as we know, James was one of the first letters that were written. Anybody who was a Christian at that time would have known who James was in his position. And, and James said, listen, I don't want to be known, first of all, as a leader. I want to be known as a servant. Now, that word servant, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, means slave or under the full control of. And the, before we make too much of that word, as, as people often do, how many of you work for someone? Yes, yeah, Stephen, get your hand up nice and high. If you work for someone, if you're employed, if you have a boss at work, aren't you supposed to do what the boss says? Amen? Okay. Just wanted Stephen to get that. Uh, no. The simple truth is, if you have a boss at work, aren't you supposed to do what they say? I got to see a baseball game yesterday. It was really cool. The Yankees got beat by the Orioles. And uh, that was lots of fun. Uh, I'm from Baltimore. And uh, we root for the Orioles when they lose, which is most of the time, and when they win, uh, and enjoy those things. But the simple truth of the matter is, 
when you are a baseball player, you're under contract. You have to do what the contract says you're supposed to do. And if you don't, what do they do? They sell you like a piece of property. Somebody said the slave trade is not dead as long as there's professional sports because they buy and trade people uh, on the open market, sell them to the highest bidder. It's, it's absolutely amazing what happens. And they enjoy it. Listen, when James said, I'm the servant of God, he was not going. Yeah, God's slave. I don't have any, any choice about what I do. I, you know, I'm just an automaton doing what God says. No, he rejoiced in the fact that he could be counted as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was thanking God that his life was about doing what Jesus said he ought to do. You know, I, I would say if we put it in modern day uh, comparison, he'd be happier. He, he was happier. He had more pleasure in being the servant of God than one of these sports guys who just signed a $20 million contract. He said, this is what my life is about. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's not some sad, dreary, terrible thing that I gave up my life and my direction so that I can serve God. I have truly found my life and my direction by submitting myself as a servant of God. Amen? Now, I like what he does in the next phrase here because he dispels an awful lot of things. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what did he just do? He made God and Jesus equal, did he not? He said, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, I'm a servant of God and then a servant of Jesus. By the way, when he said, I'm a servant of God. He's talking about Old Testament. When he said, Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about the New Testament. And guess what? Jesus himself said, no man can serve what? Two masters. But here, James is saying, wait a minute, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a servant of two masters? Absolutely. But they're the same person, the same God. So there's no conflict whatsoever. In James' mind, as far as we can tell by reading what he says here, there was no conflict in his being Jewish, and his following Jesus Christ. Now today, every once in a while, pass out track on the street store. I'm Jewish. I don't want that. Wait a minute. Jesus was Jewish. The New Testament church, James, was Jewish. He's about as Jewish as Jesus was. Amen. 
you can't change those things. Our Bible is a Jewish book. But being a Christian didn't contradict being Jewish. Not in the Bible and not in James' mind. And therefore, he said, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to address the letter to whom he intends to receive it. He says, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, the simplest and best understanding of this was James was writing to Jewish Christians. They were the twelve tribes. Anywhere you see that. When you go through the book of Revelation, you have that 144,000. I met a, a Jehovah's Witness many years ago, and they started saying, Yeah, I'm part of the 144,000. Now, I hadn't met very many that were bold enough to actually claim that title, because that belongs only in their belief to a select few. So I said, What tribe are you? Well, uh, What do you mean? I said, what tribe are you? And the person who told me this obviously was not Jewish. And so I opened the book of Revelation. I said, here's 144,000 of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the tribe of... And went down through the list. And I said, now, which tribe are you? Oh, I'm not of a tribe. Then you're not part of the 144,000 because the 144,000 make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen? And so, when James is writing here, he's writing to the Jewish Christians of the first century. Now, remember, the the church at Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. Just a few weeks later, when uh, Peter and John healed the lame man there at the entering in of the temple... 5,000 men believe. Now, that's 8,000 people that were added to the membership of the Church of Jerusalem in a matter of weeks. How in the world did that happen? Well, number one, there is no conflict between being Jewish and believing in Jesus Christ. No real conflict. There is today because people have redefined what being Jewish is to separate it from Jesus Christ and to make a difference. But also, we need to understand that there is a connection. How about Galatians chapter 4 for just a moment? If you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Actually, Galatians chapter 3, that's a misprint there. Verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3, it says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ... Then are ye, what? 
Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we go to Romans chapter 11, and the Apostle Paul here explains that many of the Jewish people who held in unbelief were actually part of God's plan. And he, and he tells us here, and if some of the branches, verse 17 of Romans chapter 11, if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not thyself against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. And what Paul was doing, this is part of Paul's uh, defense of the Jewish heritage to the people at Rome. Because the Gentile believers at Rome still were conditioned by living in the city of Rome that they were just a step above everybody else and everything. You ever met anybody like that? You ever met a real Texan? Uh, if you've ever met a real Texan, they just believe that they're made out of a little better stuff than everybody else. And uh, I'm not here to rank on Texans, but uh, every once in a while I love to tell some Texan jokes and get them a little upset and things like that. Uh, but people from New York City have the same problem now, don't they? Uh, I'm from the most educated and cultured and violent and thieving and all those other things as well. I mean, there's an awful lot. I've always said New York City has the best of everything. Well, we got the best food and the best clothes and the best thieves and the best uh, swindlers and the best car thieves. I mean, you got to be good if you're going to be here just the way it works, right? And... and Paul was writing to the Romans and explaining to them that just because you're Roman, don't forget, you're grafted into the Jewish tree, not the Roman tree. And so there would be no big deal in James' mind to address even Gentile believers as Jewish people as part of true Israel... Because, just face it, the Gentiles had a whole lot more to change than the Jewish people did in order to become a Christian. All a Jewish person needed to change in the days of James when he was writing was they needed to take out the coming Messiah and put in Jesus Christ, the Messiah who's come. That was the only thing they needed to change. That's why when Paul was writing Timothy, he said, your, grandpa, your grandmother had the Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. What Scriptures did Timothy's grandmother have two generations, a generation before Christ, more than likely, would have been the Old Testament? But they tell you about Jesus. And in this first verse here, he is making all of these connections that people get hung up on today and get twisted around in their mind. It was these people who were scattered abroad, primarily the Jewish people. They, they were scattered abroad for two reasons. Many left Jerusalem because of the persecution with Saul and went everywhere. 
uh, that could have been the timing of the book, and if it was, that was in Acts chapter nine. I mean, eight. Uh, that was before Peter took the first message to the first Gentile, which was Cornelius, in Acts chapter ten. The other reason is they were the descendants of those that had lived in many countries since Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city of Jerusalem. And so James introduces himself as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes, to, uh, we can look at that, to the Jewish believers scattered abroad and also to the true Israel, which is all over the world. And he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptation. Now, boy, what, an, what a way to get started. I mean, James is one of those preachers that didn't mess around. Um, I mean, sometimes when a pastor, a lot of times a visiting pastor gets into a pulpit, he'll, he'll sit there and he'll take some time and kind of feel out the people and tell a few jokes and work himself around a little bit until he gets comfortable, then he starts preaching. Uh, James wasn't like that. I mean, it was right between the eyes in the first real sentence of the book. He said, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Now, my brethren means this is addressed to people who are related to James. How are they related? Through a spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved. If you're not saved, this verse does not apply to you. My brethren, you must first be saved. You must first know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must share that relationship. If you have salvation, you can count it all joy. Now, when you count it all joy, what does that mean? Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. I mean, that is without any holes barred, without any reservations, when you count it all joy. I mean, how many of you secretly count it all joy to enjoy a real homemade, a real fresh-made cannoli? My uh, Deborah made me a key lime cheesecake with no sugar in it. I'll tell you what, that was enjoyable. Now, we're supposed to enjoy when we fall into diverse temptations just the way we do when we get something we really delight in. Anybody good at that? My hand's not up to say I'm good at that. I mean, that's just... None of us are. This is why it's listed as the first command. Because James is telling us something. Guess what? The first century Christians lived in a very difficult time. They were under the boot of Rome. They were enslaved and, and controlled by Rome. There were Roman soldiers marching up and down the streets in 70 A.D. 
the Roman soldiers would come in and level Jerusalem with the ground. The words of Jesus in Matthew 24 would be fulfilled. There was not one stone left on another in the temple. They completely destroyed that thing. And James says, we're to count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Now, could we talk about that word fall? How many of you have ever tried to fall down? That's a good thing. You shouldn't try to fall down. Uh, maybe you should learn how to fall down. That might work. There's certain ways that you can learn to fall that you uh, might uh, receive less injury. But most of the time, the idea of a fall is because of an accident. It's because of something that you weren't seeking or something that you missed or a loose shoelace that you stepped on, or worse yet, your loose shoelace that somebody else stepped on. And, and, and these are things that make us fall. You know, we are not to seek the trials and troubles of this life. You know, I've met some people that just look for them. You can always tell the lights dim as they walk into the room. Uh, they love that old hee-haw song, Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And, and uh, uh, I'll tell you, that is not the person to whom this is addressed. This is addressed to brethren who are trying to serve Christ, and all of a sudden you find yourself in divers Temptations. Now, the word divers just simply means many different kinds. Diverse. And that's the trials and troubles of this life. Uh, guess what? You don't have to be 50 years old, living on your own, with your own family, to fall into diverse temptations. You can be a teenager going to school and fall into diverse temptations. You can be... A young person going to grade school and, and have problems come your way because of your faith in Christ. Now, there's been an awful lot of, uh, of things that were said here and tried to be said. And it says, temptations. Wait a minute, God does not tempt you. What's this talking about? Well, look at the next verse. Knowing this, that the what? Trying of your faith. How many of you have ever tried to build anything? I mean, assemble something. What's the, the first thing you do? Is you put it together if you're gluing it. And you want to see if the glue held. So you pull on a little bit and it falls apart. Right? Uh, we were trying to put together the baptistry, and we, it's it. I, I went to the acrylic store, the glass store, to get this stuff, and they said, this is the glue you use. And so I said, okay, this is the glue you use. And so we put it on there, and guess what? We couldn't get it to stick. Well, what do you do now? You read the directions, right? 
and you're supposed to sand it and anneal it if you need to with a torch and get it super smooth, and then you hold it together for a minute and hopefully it'll stick. Well, we eventually got it stuck and it glued together, but uh, we wanted to test that thing and make sure that the glue was going to hold so we didn't put it up and it fall apart. And If your faith can't handle testing, what kind of faith is it? That's, that's the passage here. What tries your faith? Now, what is faith, my friend? Faith is believing God's Word to the point of obedience. That's the working definition. Faith is saying, this is what God said, this is what I'm going to do. So, how is your faith going to be tried? Well, there are many ways. I remember going to my pastor, uh, 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 I think it was Brother Folger at the time, and uh, trying to get some counsel from him. Uh, we were just uh, we were married for just a couple of years, and we were on deputation to come to New York City, and we didn't have any health insurance, and we were trying to figure out what to do uh, for the little baby that was on its way, and that was Sarah actually, and. Uh, we went and I said, Pastor Folger, I said, I really don't believe in this government assistant type thing. Somebody in the church told me to go down to the Metro, metro Hospital there. And we went down there. And the next thing we know, uh, they have her in visiting the doctor. And they, they have us looking at a social worker. And we're signing up for all. And I said, I'm not signing up for this stuff. And I said, what do we do here? He said, well... Brother Pete, looks like your face is going to be tested. I said, okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you're going to have to depend on God to supply the needs. And he told me about another hospital that had a program for people that didn't have insurance. And, and, but you had to pay it all up front. Before you went into the hospital, before you went into labor, uh, you had to have all your bills paid. And uh, it was a, a very good uh, situation there. And, and uh, when it got time to pay the bills, uh, the Lord had the money there. I don't know how that works, but I do know that God said he would provide. And I certainly would rather trust in God than trust in the government. Amen? And, uh, you see, that was a trying of faith. Uh, I remember another time we were still on deputation, and, and the Lord, through uh, my father-in-law, had graciously given to us a 1957 Greyhound bus. And if you're wondering, it's just a few years older than I am. Uh, it had about two and a half million miles on it when we got it. And uh, how many of you have ever had a blood test? Well, uh, you don't give engines blood tests. You give them oil tests. 
And uh, I gave the engine an oil test. And it came back positive for things that shouldn't be in the oil. You know what that meant? Praise God, you don't have to work on it while it's still running. But uh, I had to take the engine back to Cleveland Baptist Church and take it all apart. All 3,000 pounds of it. And clean out every hole and, and redo all this thing and put new cylinder kits and all of this. And on our way there to do this work, we stopped and, and uh, my uncle was then living and he said, Hey, I, I want to give you uh, a blessing. And he handed me an envelope. It had $1,000 in it. I'm sitting here going, Woo! Praise the Lord! This is what we need! Well, uh, make, let me make a long story short. It was almost $6,000 in parts. No labor. Just in parts to rebuild that engine. And I allowed myself to get worried and trying to figure out what God was... You know what God was doing? He was trying my faith. So when we got a little later... And it was going to be $763,204 for a building. It was, okay, God, you did $6,000 for an engine. Can you do? Well, of course he can. And he did. But I didn't enjoy it because I was too busy worrying where the money was coming from. You know, when I stopped worrying about where the money was coming from, it was actually enjoyable to take that engine apart. That's just me. Uh, I, I, I like that kind of stuff. You know, uh, I've never had a bearing talk back to me. It's always done exactly what it was supposed to do. Amen? Uh, the, the simple thing is, God was trying my faith and... When I started rejoicing instead of worrying about what God was trying to do, He started building me. You see, when the word temptation is used here, it's defined in the text as the trying of your faith. God does not, we're going, we're going to get to it in a little while, a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll get to it. God does not tempt you to do evil. He doesn't try your faith that way. But here's what He does. He puts you in a situation where you cannot meet the needs. And we're supposed to go, Thank you, Lord. No, we're supposed to count it all joy because God is trying to teach us something. How many of you like to be taught things? If anybody raises their hand, I'm going to disagree with you because most of us don't like to be taught things. You know, I always thought when I was a kid I'd learn all those martial arts stuff and all that kind of thing and until I found out how long and how frustrating it was to learn all that stuff. I, I did learn how to play the saxophone a little bit. 
But I remember sitting in the basement of my house, my old saxophone, and I was just so frustrated. I grabbed the neck and I just, uh, and it started moving. And it scared the living day. I said, oh, I'm going to break my horn in half. And, and I pulled it back a little bit into shape and it kept playing for, for years. But it scared the living daylights out of me. I said, listen, if I'm going to learn, I'm going to have to be frustrated. Because I can't do what, it, it doesn't come naturally. You got to work at it. That's why it says, but let patience have her perfect work. You know what? When our faith is tried, it will give us patience, but patience has to work. It has to have a perfect work. Now, what that perfect means is complete. You say, how do I know when patience has had its complete work in my life? When you're complete, when you're perfect. And by the way, if you're like that country singer who can look in the mirror and say, thank God for making me perfect in nearly every way. Or Mary Poppins, who can measure herself and said nearly perfect with the tape measure there. If you're one of those people... uh, Please see me for counseling. You are in desperate trouble. You see, I'll be perfect and entire, wanting nothing when I'm in heaven. Not until. Now, we have to be careful. Some people are going to get to, uh, get to heaven not having obtained what God intended for them to attain. They're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be entire. They're going to be wanting things in their spiritual life that they should have gotten while they were here on earth. But they didn't. But if you want to let patience have its perf- her perfect work in your life, guess how long you're going to have to wait your whole life. You know, this process never ends. Because God's got to keep testing and trying your faith. He's got to make sure that it's the kind of faith that He wants in your life. You know, there's all kinds of faith in this world. In fact, I I heard a guy do an interesting commentary. He said, people who do not go to church, who do not believe in God, believe in government. It's an amazing thing. But people who go to church, who believe in God, have a tendency not to believe in government, but to believe in God. And what did that one imbecile say to uh, one of the presidential candidates? How are you going to take care of me? Does anybody remember that? I think that was the uh, uh, debate in the last Bush election, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the simple truth of the matter is, if you refuse to believe that the God of this Bible will take care of you, the God reflex that God built into you in creation is going to substitute another God in there. I'll tell you what. 
I, I can't comprehend the amount of faith that it takes to believe that the same people who invented the U.S. Post Office and the DMV are going to take care of your health insurance. I just can't imagine. That kind of faith is incomprehensible to me. The kind of faith that it takes to believe that there is no God and that you evolved from monkeys and from amoebas and all of these things. The kind of faith that that takes doesn't compute in my head. It's like the one guy said to me, he says, you, you, you believers, you're all the same way. You just put God in the equation and it works. I said, yeah, uh, he does. I said, how does your equation work? You put chance in there and hope it's going to turn out. And that's not the way it's going to work. You see, people James were writing to were suffering in their daily lives. They were being ostracized by the other Jewish people. What do we got going here? Um, oh, somebody left their cell phone in the... Okay. The people that he was writing to, as there became a division between that which was Jewish and that which was Jesus, guess what? You lost friends. You lost jobs. You lost reputation. Some people like Stephen even lost their lives. As the Romans began to hone in on this new and emerging sect, at first they just thought they were Jews. They said, oh, we'll deal with them like the other Jews. And all of a sudden the Jews came to the Romans and said, they ain't us, they're different. And the Romans began talking to the, to the Christians. And they said, listen, if, if we need to put Jesus in the pantheon, let's get him there so we can get this bump in the road settled and we can go on. And they said, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to go in there with the shovel and get rid of all your gods and only Jesus can be put in the pantheon. And the Romans said, uh-uh. And that's when they became... Literally, the lights for Nero's games as they were burned to death, as they became sport in the Colosseum. Here's what James said. When you fall into diverse temptations, count it all joy. You know why? Because the trying, the stretching, the testing of your faith is going to give you patience. Now that you have patience moved in, she's going to start working on you. But you've got to let her have a perfect work. That means complete. And that will only be done when you're complete, when you're perfect. Would you, how many of you would like to be perfect? Who wouldn't? Well, here's what it says. That ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Patience has got to do her work all the way till Jesus comes. And then you'll be perfect and entire 
There'll be nothing missing. How many of you have ever tried to skip one of God's great lessons in your life? You know what? God doesn't do remedial school very nicely most of the time. He'll let you get on again, but you're not getting off where you thought you were. And one of the greatest problems we have as Christians is our self-evaluation. Don't get into this evaluating of your spiritual gifts or abilities. Don't ever go online and take a gift assessment test. Oh, that is so blasphemous. The whole idea of a gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit enabling you to do something that you could not do. Let me tell you something. There are great teachers out there who are not saved, who teach terrible things. In fact, some of those teachers are better teachers than people who spend their whole life studying the Bible and trying to teach what's in the Bible. Does that mean the Holy Spirit gifted Mr. Hawkins and some of these other creeps out there? No! They just have a natural ability to teach. People do have natural abilities. If everybody had the ability to hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, what would be the difference between you and a professional ball player? Uh, Let me warn you, the professionals only do it about a third of the time, maybe. And so, I know what I'd be doing if I was standing out there. Where'd the ball go? I'm not trained to react that quickly or see those things. Hey, listen. No ability that you have is going to be used by God. He will give you what He wants by testing your faith. When we surrendered to get saved, what did you do? You gave God everything, did you not? Amen? Well, if you're going to serve, you've got to give Him the same everything. And then He's going to take it, and He's going to stretch it. And it's going to hurt. That's why it's called a temptation. But it's going to hurt in lots of different ways. That's why it's diverse temptations. Amen? And that diverse temptations is going to give you patience. And patience is going to get out her hammer and chisel and start chiseling on you. Why? So that you can be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, if you'll let patience complete the work that God gave her to do. That's how James started the book. I don't know anything more practical or more needful in the Christian life than that. If you get a hold of that, guess what? You got a hold of an awful lot. And we need to let God get a hold of our souls so that we can count it all joy when we find ourselves being pulled and stretched 
by the hand of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask you to work in our hearts and lives. We ask you to give us this understanding that we need, that we can count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Lord, help us to keep our eyes and our soul fixed on you. Before we finish that prayer, we take just...